This episode is brought to you by Anchor. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. It's free, so you don't have to worry about monthly hosting fees. It has built-in creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Or you can record and edit using your favorite audio recording software and upload it straight to Anchor. Anchor will also distribute your podcast, so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Pocket Casts. You can also make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership, and Anchor will even match you with advertisers as your audience grows. So if you're interested in starting your own podcast, Anchor is a pretty great place to start. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That's A-N-C-H. OR.FM to get started. He doesn't even have the decency to dress like a whore, like a respectable JoJo villain. listening to two waves in a trench coat i'm suzanne and i'm madison and so this is not <laughs> uh, the jojo brainwatts rot is still going strong i'm not talking about jojo itself but i this episode is going to be about the creator of jojo i'm thinking about this as the prequel to the jojo saga yeah don't worry we're i i swear to god i'm not doing like eight JoJo episodes in a row, I will die. <laughs> no, they're just doing five. I'm just doing five, and it'll be <laughs> non-sequential this time, because I think if I recorded, like, eight hours in a row of just <laughs> breaking down every single part of JoJo, I would simply pass away. <laughs> so it would it would definitely be once in a while for the next couple of months. Here's this part of JoJo. That I have decided to focus on for an episode. Yeah. It also gives me time to actually, like, watch the show like I haven't been doing, so. Please watch. Please watch JoJo. Stone Ocean is good. (laughs) I love Jolene. She's so good. She's very gay and I love her. Um, (laughs) But, yeah, this episode is about the creator of JoJo, Hirohiko Araki, who is a fascinating dude what what do you know about <laughs> Araki? Um, basically nothing. I've seen like all I know is through osmosis, kind of like the way like if you don't watch Supernatural but you're on Tumblr and like you know about Supernatural. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> I know that he wrote JoJo. Um, his art is in the Louvre. Yes. Um. And sometimes he cosplays his characters. Yes! <laughs> Just one specific <laughs> one that's totally not his, quote unquote, not his self-insert. Uh-huh. And, yeah, that's all I know. All I know is that, like, I imagine he must be a character because, like, you don't come up with something like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure without, I don't know, like... Being a little unhinged? 
Yeah, in a yeah. good way. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to go over, I broke it down into, like, basic info about him, uh, a list of his works, because he's actually done a lot more than just JoJo that people may not huh. know about. Mostly the meat of this is going to be going over his influences for JoJo, because I, I think... All of these different threads of influences and inspirations that he's pulled together to make JoJo is like fascinating, mm-hmm. and then and then just some like fun facts because <laughs> why not? But I have a list of sources. I fucking Wikipedia, Kami Press, Anime News Network, the JoJo Fandom Wiki for having just good facts. Thanks, OdaQuest.com. TheCollector.com, TV Tropes, even, and, like, one article from Looper.com. Those will be in the show notes. It's just a bunch of articles. But so, Hirohiko Araki was born on June 7th, 1960. He is a Gemini. My boy. I'm also a Gemini. Kindred spirits in being, like, one of the most dunked on signs, I guess. Yeah, I know, like, basically nothing about astrology, and I try to ignore it most of the time, and the last time someone asked me what my sign was, I told them to guess, and they guessed wrong, so. (laughs) Yeah, no, every, like, every meme I see for, like, Zodiac shit, it's mostly about, like, Gemini is always, like, liars and fakers and two-faced bitches, and I'm like, who... (laughs) What specific Gemini hurt you? I'm just a funny little guy. (laughs) I'm just over here being a a little creature. (laughs) But he was born in June 1960 in Sendai, which is in uh, Miyagi Prefecture in Japan. Growing up, it was just his parents and his two younger identical twin sisters. Oh, wow. He cites his sisters being annoying as the reason he spent time alone in his room reading manga, <laughs> naming Ainto Makoto, which is written in 1974, as the most important one to him, and like also reading his father's art books, which he supposes were his motive for drawing manga. He apparently like did not have a very good relationship with his sisters. Like mm-hmm. They, uh, kind of bullied him relentlessly. Hmm. He did not get along with them super great. Which honestly kind of explains why Jotaro Kujo, the third Joestar, is kind of the way he is. Which is, if a girl even looks at him, he shuts (laughs) down. Like, Mm -hmm. it kind of, I feel like, explains a lot. (laughs) But... He drew his very first manga when he was in fourth grade. Wait, how old is that? Fourth grade? Um, that's about nine years old. Oh, Yeah, a little comic and nine-year-old little comic. This is very cute. <laughs> After a school friend praised his manga, he secretly began drawing, like, more behind his parents' backs. Because remember that, like, in the se- like seventies and and earlier, like, I guess even still today, for the most part, like, parents definitely want their kids to like go to school and get a good paying job, and like, because no matter where you live, 
in the world, being an artist is a very shaky ground to make your life choice as a career. Mm-hmm. Speaking from experience here. <laughs> so I can understand why he maybe felt the need to like hide that he was doing it. Yeah. And I feel like especially like with comics, it's like he would have been it would have been like what, 1969, 1970? Astro Boy would have just come out. Yeah. And like it probably wasn't the kind of thing where any parent would be like, yeah, I want my kid to go draw pictures for a living. Yeah, very much like, uh, you can maybe do that as a hobby and we won't give you mm-hmm. shit for it. But like, you're definitely not making that your career. Yeah. So he spent all his time like from fourth grade on drawing manga in his spare time. And his first year of high school, he submitted his first like work to a magazine. Mm hmm. All of his submissions were rejected. No. (laughs) While other artists his age or even younger at the time were making successful debuts. So I'm sure that, like, hurt. Yeah. So after getting rejected, he he decided to go to the publisher's offices in Tokyo, which was a four-hour round trip for him, to find out why in person. Uh Uh-oh taking with him a manga he had stayed up all night to finish. Oh, boy. The publishing company that he went to, the Shueisa Company, which, if you don't know, owns and publishes all of the Jump media and also owns Viz media. Um, I was gonna say, like, that sounds familiar. What if it's Jump? And it is. It's Jump, and also they own Viz Media. <laughs> um, so he, this child, because he's first year of high school, goes to them, goes to oh, this God. editor, and uh, the editor absolutely reams his work and criticizes every single page. <sighs> he's in high school. He's in high school. But also said that it had potential, and if he cleaned it up in the next five days to submit it to the upcoming Tezuka Awards, he would look at it and edit it for Mm -hmm. him. And he did. I think it won, like, runner-up or something. Nice. Yeah. That manga was his first one, which was... Or his second, which was called Poker Under Arms, which was, like, Mm Western-themed. Yeah, it was a selected work which is not, like, an actual award, but it's, like, a like a runner-up sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Araki left Miyagi University of Education before graduating, which I believe he was in the program to be, like, a fashion designer or, like, hmm. some kind of arts. And he made, his, he made his debut under the name Toshiyuki Araki uh, in 1980, which was the official publication of his submitted one-shot Poker Under Arms. His first serialization that he got was Cool Shock BT in 1983 about a young magician who solves mysteries. (laughs) His style is sort of really all over the place. Like, he definitely is very much known for pulling Western influence into his work, and his early stuff is definitely no exception. Mm-hmm. The first series that sort of shows off his 
love of like gore and horror was his next series after Cool Shock BT, which was 1984's Bow, which tells the story of a man who is implanted with a parasite by an evil organization, giving him superhuman powers and follows him as he fights against them. Uh, it was adapted into an OVA in 1989, and the manga was actually released in the U.S. by Viz in 1990. Hmm. Um, I just looked up Bao um, just to see what it looks like, and there's like a someone posted about it on Twitter. Yeah. Um, there's one reply that says anime when, and someone else says it was adapted as an OVA, and then after that someone says JoJo's. <laughs> <laughs> separate thing oh, this is different i mean yeah he's a he looks like a stand but le- <laughs> stop he looks like a stand he does cod it wasn't until his next series the gorgeous irene in 1985 that he developed his signature style of like really buff muscular characters in the, the very iconic first three parts of jojo way Mm-hmm. But after the gorgeous Irene, which I believe only had like two issues before it was canceled, like he had mm-hmm. a lot of terrible luck with having his work. Like he had a a minor cult following, but none of his work until JoJo like really took off. Mm-hmm. And his next series, which is his most well known, some would say his magnum opus, uh, is 1987's. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. It has been running since 1987. That's so wild to me because, like, when I heard about it, I expected it to be something... Well, because, like, everyone was talking about it because, I guess, the reboot of the anime just happened. Yeah. And so I was like, oh, this must be, like, a recent manga. No, it's from the 80s. Oh, it must be over, right? No. Nope. Yeah. So the first part of JoJo came out uh, in 1987 and it was it began in England in the 1880s and follows Jonathan Joestar, my beloved idiot boy. He has a single brain cell. He's a sweet little man and is very different from what people imagine when they hear JoJo today because there's no stands. There's... Mm-hmm. Like, it's still the very bombastic sort of irreverent style, but part one of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure is much quieter compared to everything else after it. Which is so funny because I remember watching it and thinking, like, this is insane. And then (laughs) it gets wilder somehow from there. It only gets more wild from here. So, still being serialized over 30 years later, JoJo's Bizarre Adventure has been adapted into numerous forms of media, and the manga had 100 million collected volumes in print by December 2016. Holy shit. From 2011 to 2021, JoJo was in part 8, which was Jojolian. Which has finished. Uh, it finished last year. And part nine is confirmed after he takes a break. So JoJo's still going. JoJo's not over. Damn. Uh, he's God. taking a break. He's taking a break to work on stuff. And then he's co- he's going back strong with, I think it's called like 
Jojo Worlds is the tentative working title. I can't imagine working on the same thing for 30... To be fair, I have not been alive for 30 years, but like... We're we're almost there, but like, I can't imagine. Stop it. Listen. So, here's the thing, though. Jojo was originally planned as a trilogy. It was supposed to stop after part three Mm -hmm. with Jotaro. And that's why the like the first three parts of Jojo feel so distinctly different because it was like it was planned to be a closed story and then he just kept going. Mm-hmm. And it gets off the rails very quickly. And that's not even taking into consideration the technical fact that part seven, eight and nine are all in a rebooted universe that has nothing to do with the original run of parts one through six of Jojo. Um, Oh yeah, it's a lot, (laughs) (laughs) but although he went to a boys school, he had a girlfriend, which there's not much to add since it's like, he talked about it in an interview and was like, yeah, I went to an all boys school, but I somehow had a girlfriend despite being like very awkward and quiet and kind of weird. (laughs) He's married, and he met his first love, like, he met during his first year in high school. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, and his, he said his preference for a partner was a woman who is not ladylike. I love that. Nice. (laughs) Hell yeah. Me too, homie. His wife's name is Asami Araki, and they have, I believe they have two daughters? They have two Mm -hmm. kids, I'm pretty sure. But I love how he's just... This kind of quiet weirdo who's really into, like, Western art and influences and music and just is sort of irreverent and does his own thing and doesn't really give a shit about what anyone else is doing. And he's just in his own little corner and he's just, he's made it work for him. Yeah, that's, that's like, one thing I've always liked about JoJo is how it's, like, so weird, but the people who are into it are so enthusiastic about it. Yeah. And it must be, like so exciting as a creator to have people like get your weird little thing but also be so excited about it especially after spending like years and years trying to make something successful and then like putting out this like it's just like it does not seem like something that would be popular or marketable like it seems like like the kind of thing that would sit on an exec's desk and then end up in the trash eventually but it's been so successful for so long which i think is just so funny yeah and just he keeps reinventing it in terms of like it's the same story like it's about the same family and lineage but it keeps getting reinvented every different part and i think that's part of what keeps it so fresh and Mm -hmm. popular because each part of jojo is so distinctly different like part part one it's fist of the north star but with dracula (laughs) part two is bisexual sherlock holmes against ancient aztec vampires part three is around the world in 80 days basically are that's when stands are introduced which are the uh the psychic manifestation of your fighting spirit and like will to live question mark (laughs) uh the reason they're called stands is because they and this is honest to God for people who haven't seen JoJo. This is 
This is the honest-to-God reason they're called stands. It's because they usually appear standing next to or behind their user. Uh, it's cool, though, because you use the English word. Stando. <laughs> yeah, stando is the... It's just... I love them. He gets really... The designs are wacky. Every stand is, like, so distinctly different and wild, and you can get really crazy with the power set. Like, there's really no limit on what a stand can be, and I think that's why after part three, stands have had the lasting power as the, like, power source of JoJo, because you can have everything from, like, punching good to (laughs) healing people to, um exploding things magnetizing things so hard that they'll eventually be crushed to death fortune telling comic book and my favorite gun (laughs) (laughs) you can tell which ones are the early stands because it's just gun are the bullets the stand is the whole gun his stand does he just shoot really good who the fuck knows? His name is Whole Horse and he's my worstie. I love the idea, like, just in an anime of, like, because anime is known for, like, its wild, or, like, shonen action anime is known for, like, its wild action sequences. Yeah. And, like, you'll have characters with, like, you have Naruto with, like, the, what is it, the jitsu? Ninjutsu. Rasengan, baby. And in Bleach, they have swords, and then JoJo is just a motherfucker with a gun. Yeah. No, no, no. Here's the thing. So in part three, we have Whole Horse, whose Mm -hmm. stand is gun. His his name is Hull Horse. Whole Horse. Whole Horse. He's cowboy. (laughs) Um, So his stand's name is Emperor, because... For the first half of when stands were introduced, they're named after the major arcana in the tarot, in the tarot cards, because like there was a theme and it was cool because stands were this new thing. So he had, it's this cool name and you're like, oh, I wonder what the emperor card is going to be. It's gun. <laughs> <laughs> and then we get to part five and there's part five takes place in Italy. It's about gangsters and mafia and it's wild, and it's road trip to Electric Boogaloo, really sad. And there's a character whose who's stand is bullets. Oh, good. <laughs> Not gun this time. <laughs> Just bullets. The bullets. Yeah, his, his stand, the stand's name is Sex Pistols. Nice. Because after Araki used the Major Arcana... He was like, well, back on my bullshit of making the localization team's lives incredibly difficult. <laughs> because so much of JoJo is named after either band names or song names. I wonder how much of the budget for, like, what is it, like, season one was just getting the rights to that one song, Roundabout? Roundabout? Oh, no, here's the thing. So, the uh, the ending... The endings of each part of JoJo are based on what Araki was listening to at the time while drawing each part. Mm. Which is great, because you have, like, Roundabout for part one and two. They got the rights to walk like an Egyptian for part three. Yeah. And then you get to part five, where the first ending is Freakin' You. Which is, uh, which is a very sexy... 
<laughs> very not safe for work song. Uh-oh. The opening lyrics are, every time I close my eyes, I wake up feeling so horny. <laughs> Subtle. So uh, I would like to point out that Araki does not speak fluent English <laughs> and was literally just listening to the music. But it's very funny being a Western fan and Wait, hearing that ending. This? Freaking you. Hold on. Well, we got to take a break so you can listen to it because here you go. <laughs> just the opening of it. Just. That's the ending for part. This sounds like fucking music. It is. Yes. This is like on, it's on someone's sex playlist. Yes. That's the ending of part five of JoJo. Oh my god. <laughs> Golden wind, baby. I like that the first, the pinned comment on this YouTube video is... Who else here watches JoJo Part 5 on Netflix and every time this ending song plays you choose to watch credits it's- oh wait, no. I thought it was like they skip it so it doesn't sound like they're like putting on their fucking playlist. <laughs> yeah. I lost track of where we were, but <laughs> every part of JoJo is so distinctly different and that probably has something to do with its staying power. That's where I was. Part three is uh, fucking around the world in 80 days with stands. Part four is small town murder mystery. It's basically Scooby-Doo, but worse <laughs> in terms of like horror. Like he really goes off with the um, dramatic, high strung, horrific tension. Like I love the vibes of part four. They're immaculate. Part five, mafia reverse taken reverse taken okay instead of you have my daughter i will find you it's take my daughter <laughs> and protect her sort of thing and then part six is local florida woman has a really bad time in prison <laughs> <laughs> part six is let jotaro kujo have a fucking break for once in his life and then that's not even getting into the parts that are still manga only. I know part seven is horse race around the United States to find the body of Jesus. Um, I'm not fucking with anyone. That's it. Okay. Anytime you talk about Jojo and you try and give out real facts of what happens, it sounds like you're fucking with them. Oh, yeah, it sounds like a shitpost. <laughs> that's the that as far as I'm aware. That is the plot of part seven. Okay, I believe you. I cannot even begin to describe what part eight is about. I know that there's like memory loss. It's like an amnesia thing. And the main Jojo is trying to figure out who the fuck he is because he doesn't remember. And that's all I know about it. Mm -hmm. I scroll too far in Wikipedia because um, to keep track of like which parts you're talking about. And I yeah. saw the line under part eight. Uh... This town's been devastated by the 2011 earthquake and tsunami, so I guess that factors in. Yeah, that one's actually, like, in the most modern time, technically. Like, every mm -hmm. other JoJo part was, besides part three, which came out in the 80s and also took place in-universe in the 80s. Like, every other JoJo part was sort of, before that was, like, a period piece. Mm -hmm. 1800s. 
1930s, 1980s, 1990s, 2000 to 2001, I think, was part five. And then part six at the time was actually taking place in the future because it was in like 20... 2011. So at the when he was writing it in 1999, <laughs> he was like, I'm going to jump ahead to 2011. So far in the future. So far in the future at the time, <laughs> which is wild to think that we're getting it as an anime now and it was being serialized in the 90s mm-hmm. because it doesn't feel like a 90s manga. The original, yeah. the original run was 1999 to 2003. For part wow. six? Yeah. And then Steel Ball Run, which is part seven, I believe, is the longest running one in terms of just sheer length because it ran from 2005 to 2011. Julian might be the longest one. It's got 27 volumes. Anyway. Since we're already talking about what he's worked on, let's let's go through his list of shit. That is is everything, and then also JoJo is here too. Araki's first work that was published is called The Bottle, and that came out in 1978. Followed by Poker Under Arms, the one that was uh, a basically an honorable mention at the Tezuka Awards in 1980. Outlaw Man in 1981, Say Hi to Virginia in 1982, BT, The Wicked Boy, in also in 1982, and Cool Shock BT in 1983. So he was, like, consistently publishing in his early years. Mm-hmm. He just, like, nothing really caught on. He had a lot of trouble with stuff getting canceled after one or two issues, or... Just it, like, nothing really catching on. But he did, like, do a lot of stuff, like, started working and came out with stuff almost every year. So it's not like he wasn't trying. (laughs) Bao came out in 1984 and ran until 1985. Gorgeous Irene came out in 1985, ran until 1986. JoJo's Bizarre Adventure came out in 1986 and ran for at least the first parts because Stone Ocean is listed as a different entry. So this is parts one through five, 1986 to 1999. Then we have the lives of the lives of eccentrics from 1989 to 2003. So he, he was also working on stuff while doing Jojo. How do you have the time? He had a lot of assistants, I think. (laughs) I think he had a a very large team of assistants. He also went from doing, I think, weekly to monthly to, like, bi-monthly at some point. I know that he took his schedule way down, too, to ease off the workload. Mm -hmm. So he wasn't doing, like, a crazy young man's schedule halfway through doing JoJo. I'm pretty sure. Mm Mm-hmm. Under Execution, Under Jailbreak in 1994, Dulce and His Master in 1996. His spinoff of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, Thus Spoke Kishibe Rohan from 1997, and it's apparently still ongoing. He comes up with new bullshit for it every so often. 
that got an anime too, right? It did, it's yeah. On Netflix. Yeah, it's on Netflix. I remember being very confused because I was like, this looks like JoJo, but it's not JoJo. But it is JoJo. <laughs> <laughs> Kishibe Rohan is his totally not a self-insert character. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kishibe Rohan is a mangaka and, you know, looks like a Rocky, <laughs> but totally not a self-insert. Dead Man's Questions in 1999, spinoff of JoJo, Stone Ocean came out from 2000 to 2003. It was first originally counted as a sequel to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure and then re-released in 2008 as the final part of the original six-part series of JoJo, Hmm. like before the universe reset with all of the new characters. Hmm. (laughs) Oingo Boingo Brothers Adventure in 2002. Uh, That's a spinoff of JoJo. So in part three... I'm sorry, hold on. It's called Oingo Boingo? Brothers. Okay. Oingo and Boingo. (laughs) Yes. So remember how so so many JoJo characters are named after bands? (laughs) I mean... First of all, like, Oingo Boingo is a very strange band name. Yes. So, like... Basically, the localization team just gave them actual Japanese names. No. Yeah. It was too hard to to give them anything else. Hold on. Let me look up what their names are. Oh, God. (laughs) His. So his localized name is Zenyatta. Okay. For Oingo's localized name is Zenyatta. And... Boingo's localized name is Mondata. I just can't get over a character whose name is Oingo. Yeah, and they're taken completely seriously. (coughs) I love them, though. I take it back. I don't think they're actually like Japanese names because they ended up naming them as a reference to um, an album by the police instead of being (laughs) Oingo Boingo, but um, Mm. I... I love them. They're they're just very good antagonists. Steel Ball Run came out in 2004 to 2011. It was originally planned to be a new series, but was later retconned as the reboot of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Hmm. That's the one where they go find they go on a American cross country horse race to find. The literal corpse of Jesus. And Jesus' corpse is in a, in a... Wait, is where? Somewhere in America. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah. Also, the president of America's name... Uh-oh. Um, oh, no. Have you... <laughs> okay. So, the president of America in, uh-huh. in, in Steel Ball Run, his uh-huh. name is Funny Valentine. Uh-huh. His name is Funny Valentine. Here. I'll, I'll send That's- you a picture. That's, that's not that's, a... Oh, no. That's what he looks like. That's funny Valentine. He's got long um, blonde hair that's curly at the end, and he wears um, all pink. Um, You know, the president of the United States. Why is he so but, pretty? Because <laughs> it's... We're deep into the twinkification of Jojo oh, at this God. point. So he's very pretty. Would you like to know what his stand looks like? 
I don't know if I'm ready. It's a BDSM bunny boy. Um. Um. Yes. His stand's name is Dirty Deeds Done Dirt Cheap, which is an amazing name for a stand. Would you like to know what his stand's name is localized to? <laughs> Ew. Filthy axe at a reasonable price. <laughs> I love him. Um, <laughs> filthy axe at a reasonable price. It's oh, fucking so incredible. Good. Dirty deeds <gasps> done dirt cheap, my beloved. No. Yeah. So fucking good. I fucking love JoJo, dude. <laughs> fucking love JoJo. Filthy axe at a reasonable price. <laughs> Steel ball run with our... The only American president I respect, Funny Valentine. <laughs> and then Rohan at the Louvre, which was a one-shot spinoff in 2010 that was actually sold in the gift shop of the Louvre when a, when a handful of manga artists were invited to display their work there. Kishibe Rohan meets Gucci from 2011, another spinoff of JoJo where I think it's about Rohan coming across a stand that's like a possessing a Gucci bag or something. It was it was tied into it was tied into the first collaboration he did with Gucci. Why did I think that it was like, oh, he meets Gucci and it, of course it's a fucking Gucci bag. I mean, he may meet Gucci. I have not read it. <laughs> Jajolian from 2011 to 2021, that's 10 years of Jajolian. Which is part eight of JoJo. It is a sequel to the rebooted continuity of Steel Ball Run and not the original version of JoJo. Jolene, Fly High with Gucci, which is the second collaboration, I think, with Gucci. It's a spinoff. It was like a one-shot, 2012. Um, here are some fun ones that are not manga. Oh. But are like collaborations or things that he's done that were like notable. Mm -hmm. For the September 2007 issue of Cell, had a cover drawn by Rocky with a Legasse represented as a stand. Cell. Wait, wait, hold on. Wait. Yes. You said Cell. I was like, oh, it couldn't be like the journal, right? Yes, what? the peer-reviewed scientific journal publishing <laughs> research papers across a broad range of disciplines within the life scientists. Uh, that that Cell magazine. Yes, <laughs> I hate so like my I work in um like scientific journal publishing. So nothing I say is of any interest to anyone who doesn't have a PhD. Basically, so like when stuff yeah. comes up from that in like real life. Basically, it's very strange. Here's what it looks like. He drew this scientific uh, um. pro protein. Holy so, shit. Yeah. How did they even think to, like, commission him for this? Like, how did this happen? I, someone was just a JoJo fan. <laughs> Legasse, says Google. So in biochemistry, a ligase is an enzyme that can catalyze the joining, parentheses, ligation of two large molecules by forming a new chemical bond. Okay. It's a stand. They drew. He drew it as a stand. 
This is a <sighs> peer-reviewed scientific journal this is so covering good. areas such as molecular biology, cell biology, systems biology, stem cells, developmental biology, genetics, genomics, protonomics, cancer research. Someone there is a fucking weeb. <laughs> and the cover is amazing. Like, it looks fucking baller. <laughs> yeah, it looks sick as hell. Wish all the little guys in my body looked like that, honestly. Like, <laughs> oh, I was going to mention something that no one will care about. Um, we love that here. That's, <laughs> homie, that's our whole podcast. Um, no, I'll probably cut it out. But um, basically, there's this thing called the impact factor. Um, I'm putting myself to sleep. But basically, it's like the <laughs> ratio of articles published to how, how much they're cited. Mm-hmm. And like, in general, most journals I've worked on have an impact factor of like four. And that's really good, depending yeah. on the size of the journal. Um, Cell has an impact factor of 41.58. <laughs> Holy shit. Which, which is a lot. Yeah. Like, this is a journal that is very well known in scientific publishing so it's not like a random journal festering away on a website no one's ever heard of that you like maybe cited a paper from once in undergrad like this is <laughs> this is like, like a this major is a legitimately a big deal that he did this yes <laughs> i love it i love that they asked this man to draw them <laughs> a cover for a scientific journal and he just went okay <laughs> Like, come on. So fucking good. Um, in 2009, Hirohiko Araki was one of five artist, artists selected by the Musée de Louvre. <laughs> fucking, I hate French. I say it like that because I detest the French language. Oh, did you do it obnoxious on purpose? Yeah, because I failed French three times in high school, homie. <laughs> I hate the French language. Sorry to any France of Francophiles out there. Um, I don't like it. <laughs> uh, to create original works set at the famous museum. So they reached out to five different artists to like make a work. Each of them create a separate work that was set at the museum. Mm-hmm. And he created the one-shot manga of Rohan running around the Louvre <laughs> for, for a one-shot. And it ran from January 19th to April 3rd. Uh, the exhibit was called The Louvre Invites Comic Strip Art. And then it was eventually, like, re-released and published on a, on a wider scale. And you can you can get it as a, as a separate little one-shot now. <laughs> That's... Which is wild. What is this man's life? I don't know. <laughs> like, here. Here's an example of some of the collections... Of things at the Louvre. Oh, boy. Most famous items at the Louvre. <laughs> Isn't the Mona Lisa in there? The Venus de, Ma- de Milo. The Mona Lisa. The Coronation of Napoleon. Oh, my God. Winged Victory, uh, which is the Nike statue. The Great Sphinx of Tanis. Give that back. <laughs> The Hammurabi Code, also give that back. It's not yours. A bunch of stolen shit. Bunch of stolen shit. They're French. What do you fucking expect? (laughs) Uh, Liberty Leading the People, which is that French Revolution one with, like, her titty out. 
Yeah, and the headless statue of uh, winged victory, which is the very famous uh, Nike statue. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so this man has had, this manga artist has had his work there with the Mona Lisa. <laughs> Damn. And the other noticeable one from September 17th to October 6th, 2011, the Gucci store in Shinjuku hosted the Gucci X Hirohiko Araki X Spur. Rohan Kishibi goes to the Gucci exhibition, a collaboration between the luxury Italian clothing brand, Gucci, the creator of JoJo, Araki, and the fashion magazine Spur. The exhibit celebrated the 90th anniversary of Gucci and featured a life-size figure of Rohan Kishibe, as well as numerous art and illustrations by Araki, including actual pieces of the brand's 2011-2012 fall-slash-winter collection and his own original fashion designs. I can't believe he got to design for Gucci. Yeah. Uh, and it is some of the most, like, it, it resells for a lot. <laughs> oh, I, I would assume the, so. The JoJo Gucci merch, yeah. <laughs> for Spur, a Rocky Drew Kishibi Rohan meets Gucci, a full-color one-shot featuring Rohan Kishibi that ran in its 2011 October issue. And then Spur once again ran a JoJo spinoff, which was the Jolene Fly High with Gucci uh, in their February 2013 issue. This man has a very impressive resume. <laughs> I can't believe there's JoJo Gucci merch. And there's, like, really expensive, like, watches and stuff, too. Like, he's partnered with, like, really big-name fashion brands. God. Let me look up. Gucci JoJo merch. <laughs> yeah, limited. What? Hello? Uh, it, Limited reproduction print of one of his art pieces from that run uh, is on sale for eBay for $2,000. I'm sorry, the print? Uh, one of the prints that was there, yes. Not even like like Not the clothes, just the print. A print? Yeah. <sighs> Wild. Um <laughs> So moving on though to his influences, which is like the meat of my research that I I'm really excited to to dig into cuz his influences I think are a fascinating and eclectic mix. So his biggest influence that he's talked about being the most inspired and influenced by is French. Ga- fucking, fucking French. Hold on. How do you pronounce your name, bud? Gauguin? Gauguin. Uh, Paul Gauguin. Gauguin. Who was a French post-impressionist artist. His art is known for having depth, but it does a lot of things like very severe color blocking where the ground would be pink and the trees would be blue Hmm. like when you actually look at his art side by side um with some of iraqi's like very color blocked pieces it the references are and inspiration are very clear Mm -hmm. iraqi loved gogan's art ever since he was a child and has been deeply influenced by him and his constant disregard of reality in favor of using colors that he thought looked good together like again pink grass to contrast darker color horses and distorted perspective and proportions to evoke certain emotions in the viewer Rocky's 
earlier work is known for having not super great proportions. <laughs> uh, and sort of reality bending poses. Like that was a big thing in his earlier work. Iraqi adopted this cavalier view of reality for his own work and did a lot of bending perspectives and making bones, I will say, very malleable, which is not a real thing. People cannot usually bend that way. But it looks baller as fuck. And it does make for very dramatic and cool posing and very punchy panels that are both iconic and memeable still to this day. Like, oh, you're approaching me? I can't beat the shit out of you without getting closer. Like, everyone knows that that page. Mm -hmm. So, like, not only did he adopt the, like, (laughs) human proportions can be whatever you want. (laughs) Um, He also very much adopted this post-impressionist style of, like, coloring, where he does a lot of color switching in his illustrations and color blocking and characters will have completely different color schemes from one piece to the next. Hmm. Like, even in the same episode, I was live blogging my reaction to (laughs) Eli (laughs) at the time. And it goes from, like, the normal colors of, like, Jotaro's blue-black school uniform and then suddenly the vibe changes and the action is ramping up and he switches to like oh this beautiful like bright teal aqua color which looks wild and out of place but just adds this dramatic this like impeccable dramatic effect Mm -hmm. and then in the same scene like not even two minutes later there's like a pink color shift and now He's got, like, pink-red hair, and all of his gold accents on his coat and his hat are blue. Like, it's really cool how they um, kept Araki's vibe and Petchant for switching his colors literally all the time just for the vibes and, like, what looks good mm-hmm. to, to just match the vibes. And it makes watching JoJo literally such a fun experience because... It's just, it's a treat for the eyeballs. There's just a lot happening at all times. It is visually such a fun time. (laughs) Truly. Here, I'll send you, like, I just grabbed the screenshots so I can send them. This is all literally within, like, the same five minutes of one episode. Normal colors. Blue. Pink. It's so good. It just adds, like like you were saying, like a level of drama to it where it's not like the colors are chosen very deliberately for a specific effect and not just like, oh, wouldn't it be kooky if we made it these colors? It's like... Yeah, it's like they're done with intent and every time a color switch happens, it's they're not picking colors at random. It's clearly with a specific color palette. Mm -hmm. Like I know that one of Kakyoin's most well-known color switches from his normal red hair and, like, green school uniform is silver slash white hair with a black uniform. And it's just a completely different vibe of character. Mm-hmm. Like, it changes the vibes of the character in such a in such a visually interesting and viscerally pleasing way. And I'm not entirely sure how to describe it. 
it's art. <laughs> it's art, homie. Until the anime came out and like canonized the colors, fans had no idea what was supposed to be the canon colors for characters. <laughs> which is hilarious to me. Yeah, I was gonna ask, like, because manga is usually published in black and white because really it's cheapest. Yep. But like, how how do you not end up with a situation like Matt from Death Note where like entirely different colors are used? Oh, yeah, his weird green black hair. <laughs> God. So another big inspiration that he's talked about was actually MC Etcher. Oh. I got very scared for a second because for some reason my brain thought you were going to add an R to the end of that because my brain is full of worms. Etcher? MCR. S? Oh! (laughs) (laughs) My stand! Chemical (laughs) romance! If only. God, I beg? (laughs) My stand, chemical romance. Oh, God. Uh, Harping on the color shifting for just a little bit more. It just, it does something so, I don't know what it is. It just, I love it. It's one of my favorite parts about JoJo is just the colors flip-flopping all over the place, but with like some form of clear intent. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just art good. Art (laughs) art make you feel things sometimes. (laughs) So MC Etcher was apparently a really big inspiration for JoJo 2. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, there's a specific piece called Sky and Water, which was a big influence on a specific stand in part four of, of, of JoJo. It's really hard to explain, but just the reality-breaking work was an influence on JoJo. And if you've seen it or read it, there's a specific stand in part four that literally looks exactly like a specific piece of MC Etcher's art. <laughs> it's, it is not subtle. <laughs> Oh, so going back to the colors, mm-hmm. again, because I didn't keep these grouped by anything like a fool, my notes. <laughs> I just, I wrote them down in the order I came across them instead of grouping them together like a sensible person. But when part three of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure became an OVA in 1993 and 2001, which was Stardust Crusaders, the this was like the first time that JoJo was animated. Mm-hmm. before the current series that we have now by David Productions. One of the animators asked Araki, what color is Jotaro? <laughs> and Araki didn't have a concept of like what his actual colors were because he colors everything based on calculation and how he's feeling at the time. Oh, so vibes. Yeah, so vibes. It's literally a vibe check. <laughs> so for one of the volume covers of part five, the Jojo of that that part, Giorno, his clothes are pink and in the anime are are colored pink. But on another volume color cover, they're colored blue. And they're never blue in the show. They just stay with the pink for the most part as like his canon color. And they still do the color shifting and stuff. But there's like the canon set of colors for all of the characters in the anime and then they'll do color sh- the color shifts based off of like cover art and illustration pieces that Araki's done for them. Mm-hmm. He gets his inspiration from 80s art and shading techniques and 
shading techniques in Western art, classical paintings, and gets a lot of his inspiration for poses from classical Greek sculptures, actually. Hmm. It's funny how much, like, classical art inspiration there is in those. Yeah, it was genuinely surprising how much of his inspiration is literally classical and, like, Renaissance-era art. Mm -hmm. Rocky is fascinated by mysteries ever since he was a child, so a big part of the actual storytelling inspiration for a lot of his stuff was, like, when he was a kid and fantasized about, you know, deserted islands and... King Kong and Godzilla and the Loch Ness Monster being real and mysteries and horror and all that. He's actually straight up been quoted as saying that he could have never created Jojo if he hadn't read Sherlock Holmes. Hmm. And if you do look closer past all of the bombastic fight stuff and characters and overarching ridiculousness of Jojo... The threads of, like, mystery and thriller and horror inspirations in his actual storytelling style are very, very much there. Hmm. I was joking earlier when I was like, oh, part one's just Fist of the North Star with Dracula. (laughs) But it is. It is very heavily, clearly inspired by Dracula in some capacity. Part two is very clearly a mix of, like, Indiana Jones and Sherlock Holmes Part three is more of that, like, around the world in 80 days, journey to the center of the earth, like, adventure stuff. And then part four is where he really goes in hard with the mystery-solving Sherlock Holmes, Scooby-Doo gang mm-hmm. vibes. So another another big influence on his work, which was fucking Da Vinci. <laughs> I know it's Da Vinci. Don't go. Why did right. you say I'm- it like that? Because of that stupid fucking TikTok. <laughs> Have you not seen it? No, I don't use TikTok. I don't use TikTok either. <laughs> Who painted the Mona Lisa? Oh, Mona Lisa. Oh, yeah, yeah. Da Vinci. Da Vinci? Da Vinci. I know it's Da Vinci. <laughs> but so he's quoted as saying, learning and reading about Da Vinci and his work and what he mastered and what he discovered was really important to him and was sort of like a guiding source of inspiration towards achieving his own success. So he didn't really have any specific one-off inspirations for most of the earlier JoJo's, but like it was mostly inspired by like Fist of the North Star and Rambo and Terminator and very big muscle muscle movies from the 80s, at least for the first two parts. But uh, one of the JoJo's who has like a very specific and he has gone on record saying this is like Jotaro is basically straight up based on Clint Eastwood and most <laughs> of the character he characters he plays in westerns, which is like silent, stoic gunslinger. Mm-hmm. He also revealed in an interview that Blade Runner was a huge inspiration for at least the first part of JoJo, hmm. and Roy Batty, who was portrayed by Rutger Hauer. Influenced the character Dio in the manga in particular, he mentioned appearance-wise, like, how this guy's appearance influenced how he drew Dio. Hmm. The bulkier designs in parts one and four were partially influenced by Kenshiro from Fist of the North Star, 
and 80s action film heroes and and the like but the main inspiration is again from like classic renaissance sculptures the defined jawlines the overly well-developed muscles (laughs) and the strong facial features i always forget how homoerotic men's fashion and like that kind of male archetype was yeah because it used to be very manly to wear crop tops i guess yeah you know (laughs) and booty shorts Mm -hmm. along with his passion for classical art Baraki has a deep love of the fashion industry, has had collaborations with Gucci, but he does list, like, Dior and Versace among his inspirations. And many of, like, the most iconic, like, when you think of JoJo manga panels that Mm -hmm. are, like, really stand out are usually, they're usually the ones that were straight up homages to legendary 80s fashion illustrators. Mm. Uh, like Hermit Purple's photograph of Dio showing off his Joestar birthmark is based on a 1985 illustration of a female model by Tony Viramont. Hmm. The same artist inspired Cars from Part 2 Switzerland's outfit, Kira's black and white hairstyle from Part 4, and Jonathan Joestar's hand in front of the face pose, his loose line work and vibrant color choices. Definitely fit the the vibe and style Iraqi had at the time for parts one and two with, like, the very exaggerated facial expressions, um, which he still keeps to this day despite having a much slimmer and, like, toned down art style in comparison. Mm-hmm. Antonio Lopez is another of Iraqi's inspirations. His designs are often covered in detailed patterns and loads of jewelry, which made their way into Jojo as the golden badges that, like, Jotaro and Josuke wear in part four, and the very flashy suits from part five, where part five is just everyone gets a titty window. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just the vibe of part five, is you get a titty window uh, in your suit. Horror movies, I mentioned his inspiration and, like, love of horror a little bit earlier, but he is apparently very fond of B-rated horror movies and, like, same. This is probably mostly noticeable if you look at, so, like, some of the more honestly terrifying stands, like, the ones that are just uncomfortable to look at, like, are much more easier to find the the horror movie inspiration in. And again, in, like, part four, that's where you can really tell the the horror movie inspirations. Mm -hmm. He sort of, like, let them free a bit more. Naturally, he loves Italian splatterpunk. Wait, I'm sorry, what? Splatterpunk. It's a genre. Okay. (laughs) And the horror films of Dario Argentino. Argento? Not Argentino, Argento. Thank you. Good God, brain. (laughs) Because, here's the thing, if you've seen a Dario Argento movie and you've read or watch Jojo, you will notice that they both have a propensity to injure eyes to shock the audience. Mm. And Araki has also talked about how he really likes drawing skin peeling before. Um, okay. <laughs> yeah, so he likes, he's a, he is a horror fan. He likes Gort. Like, something people don't talk about a whole lot with Jojo is that it is gory like it is not yeah it is very gory like people get routinely punched through their entire guts well like there's this part of like part one where there's like something 
with like a parasite or something. Or I think Dio has this thing where he like infects people. And like, there's like a shot where you can see like stuff moving under a character's skin. And it was so disturbing that I like put the anime down for like a year. Part three. That's literally like the second episode of part. That's like episode three of Stardust Crusaders. I hate it. Yeah, there's like a flesh bud that Eh. he can implant in people Eh. and control them with. Eh. It has a self-preservation instinct. So if someone tries to take it out, it'll start digging into their skin to take over their brain. Oh, it's so gross. Yeah. JoJo is funny and colorful and silly and bizarre. It is also incredibly gory. Yeah, I feel like people forget that because the show's so goofy that, like, there are elements yeah. of body horror in it that are kind of disturbing. There's so much body horror. Holy shit. <laughs> Using names from Western music to name his characters and stands is a simple hobby for a Rocky. <laughs> it's a way to pay respect towards rock artists. But the fact that nowadays there aren't many names of bands to use is becoming a problem. He's been quoted as saying, Wow. Iraqi, please, Iraqi, I need you to name a band. I need you to name a stand, Chemical Romance. I s- please. I'm manifesting it. Okay, but can you imagine if you, like, found out that in part nine, <laughs> there was a new stand called Chemical Romance? I think we would never hear the end of it, first of all. I think the Discord would blow up. I would simply pass away. <laughs> I think. I like that subtle shade, too. It's like, y'all gotta come up with better names for your bands. Yeah, no. For real, though. Like, (laughs) he's not wrong. (laughs) I agree. When making JoJo, Araki wondered what superpowers really were and if he could portray the idea of energy itself, which is, in part one and two, the concept of Hamon slash Ripple energy. Mm Mm-hmm which is then superseded by stands starting in part three, which were supposed to be like guardian spirits that, quote, can destroy boulders and stuff. (laughs) And stuff. And stuff. They would, quote, stand by their master and would be called, quote, stands. (laughs) I just, I love the concept of stands as they're named that because they literally just stand (sighs) next to you. Apparently, part three began immediately after part two with no interval or downtime in between making the two parts. And at the time of writing parts two and three, the pyramid slash like tournament formula for Shonen was like super the big thing. Like character A would fight and then defeat B and then the next stronger character C would come off, like come next and it would just be a progressive like power creep. Mm-hmm. But Araki wondered how strong could they get? Wouldn't the entire system collapse as soon as you reached the top? Much like the economic bubble of the 80s in Japan. (laughs) Wow. It wasn't like there could be an infinite number of levels to strength. So a lot of his inspiration with creating stands was creating more of an RPG slash board game style system where the characters traveled to different places to fight enemies, as seen in part three of JoJo, where... There are things like stands can be long range or short range. Stands can be more utility based or straight up fighting based. 
You have Star Platinum, who is all strength and precision and, like, muscle. He's a very strong boy. <laughs> and then you have stands like Hierophant Green, which, if he was going toe-to-toe with Star Platinum in a contest of strength, he'd get his ass kicked. Mm-hmm. But Hierophant Green can do stuff like unravel itself into a bunch of tentacles and become a sensory web and possess people and do a whole bunch of other stuff. So the amount of different things that stands can do is so interesting and good. There are literally limitless possibilities. And even if a stand is physically stronger, you can still come up with a strategy Mm -hmm. to beat them, which is very much a lot more interesting than a procession of increasingly stronger enemies which gets very boring yeah like sometimes i often think about um the way it works in bleach where ichigo never comes up with a strategy he just gets progressively stronger because his strategy is a is essentially just like just stab it until it dies (laughs) which like is fun but it's also with jojo the fights are very much like you might think that these two characters are not well matched because one is clearly weaker than the other, but then they'll come out and be like, oh no, I have a strategy for getting myself out of this, basically, and it's so much more interesting. Yeah, like, one of my favorite fights in part three of of JoJo, Stardust Crusaders, is Jotaro, the JoJo of that part, whose stand is Star Platinum, the one that's really good at punching. (laughs) Jotaro gets attacked by a stand that can basically digest anything and gets more powerful the more matter it digests and can also disguise itself as other beings because it's malleable. And a piece of it breaks off and attaches itself to his hand and he tries a couple of different ways to get it off and it just increases like growing over his hand. And so he has to come up with a different way of taking down the stand user than just beating the shit out of them. Because there's, like, the time limit of his hand literally getting digested as he's trying to do this. And it's just, it's so good. Mm -hmm. It's so much better than just watching people beat each other up every episode in the same way. (laughs) I like a good, like, just beat the shit out of each other episode. But I also like the, like, strategy element. Yeah, and I mean, don't get me wrong. Every episode is a, at least for, like, part three is, like, most episodes are, oh, there's another stand user. We have to defeat them. But each way that they defeat them is always so unique. Like, a couple of them are very similar, yes. But 99% of the fights are unique and interesting and keep everybody on their toes. And it's... Like, there's an entire uh, like two-part episode where half of the team's souls get taken... And Jotaro has to gamble for them. He can't beat this dude up because if he kills them, then his friends die too. He has to actually sit there and out-bullshit a professional gambler. And it's so much fun. It's so much fun. It's some of my favorite episodes. I also like that Araki was like, he looked at the like standard shonen model and was like, isn't that like capitalism? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Araki legitimately said A cab, honestly, and like fuck capitalism. I love him. Uh he is a homie. Uh when asked 
if he could describe Jojo in a single word, which is apparently a question he hates to answer. <laughs> he did answer along the lines of, it's about the enigma of human beings. Hmm. He's just, he's all about that human experience, honestly. <laughs> it's its literally about the enigma of being alive and being a person. Mm-hmm. It's the eulogy of being human, more or less, which I think is fascinating just because there are so many parts to Jojo and it's been running for so long that he does have time to explore all these different facets of being yeah. human tied into this buck wild bizarre adventure. <laughs> yeah, I keep thinking about that one review I found that was basically like Jojo's stupid and doesn't have any substance, which like I think we've proven at this point that that's not true, but also I think... How does it feel being a very tired and sad person? <laughs> what brings you joy in this life? <laughs> Nothing, it sounds like. But I think it's it's funny how, like, this is a show that's just buck wild, but also there's so much thought put into it behind the scenes that comes through if you look for it. And, like, on one hand, yeah. you can just enjoy it as, like, a weird little show, but on the other, there are, like, all these elements in it that make it so unique and i think is why it's endured for so long because like there's no way you can make something for this long and have people still enjoy it and keep coming back to it unless it's good in some way yeah like i was literally messaging eli like yesterday i think or the day before and i just we went absolutely off the rails just talking (laughs) about the character development of jotaro kujo the Jojo from part three, because he's the Jojo that appears in the most parts. He shows up for the first time in part three and we see him in four, five and six, hmm. which is like two more parts than Joseph Joestar, the other longest running Jojo shows up in. We see Jotaro go from a 17 year old edgelord who's stoic and rude, but it's clearly just a front because he's a, he's a hafu in very racist Japan in the 80s, and his dad is never home. He's always on tour. His mom is very clearly American. Mm -hmm. And he's just like, it's clearly a method of self-preservation to put on this delinquent persona so no one fucks with him. Mm -hmm. And then we see these little moments of kindness that he is under no obligation to do, and you would think he wouldn't do them because he like calls his own mom a bitch. That's like the first thing he does when we meet him. But he does things like offer to buy a child whose ice cream falls down another one like he he's kind to animals he's ride or die for his friends and we see him literally take the world on himself Mm -hmm. and he's 17 and then we see him again at almost 30 and there's just like from that almost 30 part onwards there's just this very quiet like melancholy to him for every other part that we see him in like this man has trauma he needs therapy and he becomes like a distant father when it's clearly a mix of, again, self-isolation to preserve others. And he ends up paying for it and still like, despite being an absent father in part six when he's in like his 40s, the first thing he does is like try and break his daughter out of prison and then take a bunch of bullets for her. He's a fascinating character. All of the Jojos are fascinating and well-written in their own way. But we get a bigger span of time with Jotaro because we see him from 17 years old to being
being a 40-year-old father. And it's just, it's genuinely so interesting. Mm -hmm. Character development. (laughs) Character development, even. (laughs) I love a show with good character development. Like, I've been thinking a lot about, this is unrelated, but I've been watching a lot of, like, video essays. And it's just interesting to watch ones about shows that are bad. Because... (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's, like, on one hand, it's like, I love the drama of watching someone fuck something up but also when someone does something badly it's kind of like the curtain dropping where while everyone on stage is like scrambling around to like fix the set or something like you can see all of the rough edges and stuff where they just fuck stuff up because when something's good you don't notice all of the like scaffolding but when something's bad you can notice like oh this sucks in this particular way because they didn't do character development or like this character isn't consistent or like this doesn't make sense for the universe that that the story is set in and stuff like that. Yeah. So like it means I appreciate stuff that's good because <laughs> then you can see like, oh, this is good because of this reason. Yeah. I like I don't watch much TV anymore. I don't. Oh, God, no. <laughs> I don't think. It's all terrible, but... Most of it is. Most most of it is, though. Yeah. <laughs> there is some, like, weirdly, like, very mediocre stuff out there that's still getting made. So it's nice to know that yeah. there's stuff that's, like, JoJo, which is weird, but also good at, like, a story level. Yeah. And, like, this isn't... I mean, I know that I've done nothing but, like, praise Araki and JoJo for, like, the last <laughs> almost hour and 40 minutes. Like, there isn't to say that it, it doesn't have its own issues and Araki doesn't have his own issues. I'm just not going into them in this episode. Mm-hmm. When I go into the JoJo parts, I will talk about the specific issues with those parts of the series. Like, yeah, I don't know. It took him uh six parts to be able to write a believable girl. <laughs> Like, he was not great at writing women characters for most of his career. Like, there's stuff like that. Mm -hmm. I don't want anyone to think I am just 100% all praise all the time for Rocky. I'm aware he is a human person. I'm aware Jojo also has flaws. Yeah. I still love it. It's very good media. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) But now for some some of the fun facts I I have written down. So, when asked if he could describe manga in a single word, he replied that it's less of a word, a single word, but his combined feelings on it would be the salvation of the heart. And he considers, like, manga as a medium, like, very important. The name Jojo was derived at a Denny's. Uh... Huh? So, the name Jojo was derived at a Denny's, where Araki uh-huh. and his first editor... Ryosuke uh, Kabashima had their first meeting pertaining to the series. The two had decided on Jonathan as the series protagonist. However, Araki also wanted the initials to match in a similar way to the American filmmaker Steven Spielberg, you know, SS. (laughs) So they eventually landed on the name Jonathan Joestar and thus the the nickname Jojo was born and every... Joe Star, every main Joe Star of the series has had the nickname Jojo. Jonathan Joe Star, Joseph Joe Star, Jotaro Kujo. Josuke Higagashita is a little different and has more to do with how the characters are pronounced. 
and is more of like a ling- ling- linguistics joke for like Japanese speakers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like when you translate it to to English, it doesn't work, but he is, fear not, Josuke is still a Jojo. <laughs> you have Giorno Giovanna, which Italian doesn't have the J sound, but G-O-G-O is, would essentially be pronounced Jojo anyway. And then you mm-hmm. have Jolene Cujo. You have Johnny Joestar, and you have another Josuke in part eight. So every everyone is a Jojo. In terms of the memes surrounding JoJo's bizarre adventure, <laughs> his personal favorite is Daga Kotowaru, which is Rohan saying, I refuse, very dramatically. And again, that's his totally not self-insert, self-insert. <laughs> so JoJo has a, repu- has a reputation for a lot of animal death. Specifically, dogs yeah uh, there's a lot of dead dogs <laughs> i just watched an episode where a dog got fucking like shredded <laughs> like there's a lot of dog death in jojo and people get on a rocky for that a lot but there's actually a reason for it uh-huh. um which is a rocky himself is a dog lover Okay. And sees animal cruelty as an easy indicator that a character is an irredeemable <laughs> monster. Okay. So he's actually doing it because this is his shorthand for saying this person is irredeemable. Like, they deserve what's coming to them. And you know what? Fair and valid. <laughs> I also love that that means cars in part two. One of the pillar men is not an irredeemable monster because he explicitly takes time out of his day to save a dog from being run over. <laughs> <laughs> like, I love the implications of that. It's like, um, well, I've been listening to this um, Harry Potter podcast, and I don't do that usually, but this one is specifically about how much the series kind of sucks. Yeah, good. It's called, <laughs> it's called A Shrieking Shack. Uh, go check it out if you're interested and kind of hate Harry Potter. But um, they notice that one of the ways that J.K. Rowling tries to uh, show that a character is evil is by murdering a baby, but it's not always that effective. <laughs> it just kind of comes off as like she can't imagine anyone doing anything more evil than murdering a baby. So that's like their one. There are way more things, yeah, more evil than murdering a baby. And I think that like with JoJo, it's like an evil character murdering a dog is like one of many indications that the character is evil. And then they go on to do other evil things. Whereas with J.K. Rowling, yeah. I feel like this character murdered a baby. Isn't that fucked up? And then after that, they don't do anything that's really like that fucked up. I guess. Yeah. Here, I'll I'll do you. <laughs> I'll do you one better. Oh boy. How about a baby murdering a dog? Yo, I was that just gonna say. So like, I was I put that episode on. Because I was like, oh, might as well. It's on Netflix. I have nothing better to do for the next, like, half hour. I'll put on an episode of JoJo. And of course, it's an episode with the evil baby that murders a dog. Death 13. <laughs> Death 13. Yeah, he's a baby with a... He's baby stand. <sighs> oh, my God. This entire <laughs> That's thing. My favorite fucking meme. Like, Zach walked in and I was watching the episode. And he was like, why does the baby have fangs? And I was like, listen, I couldn't tell you. Baby stand. Oh, God. Baby stand. Yeah, this baby has a stand and he's evil and fucked up and tries to kill <laughs> Jojo and the the Joe Bro crew. 
of part three. And the first thing he does is like, he tries to kill Kakyoin and ends up stabbing a dog instead. So, you know, this baby's irredeemable <laughs> is an irredeemable monster. <laughs> What's that tweet that's like, hold on. There's like a tweet that got dunked on. Oh my god. Really? It's not JoJo related, but I'm just thinking of it. It's, uh, why do we bash deadbeat dads for not being there for their kids, but we never question if the child has bad vibes or if they're just unpleasant to be around? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. That's, oh my god. (laughs) This child has bad vibes. This child was absolutely cursed. (laughs) I just... I've started following a lot of, like, fan artists and creators for JoJo, and it's, like, just a joke that to, like, tag any Vines or TikToks or, like, art with, Oh, like... is this a JoJo reference? No, no, oh. no. For, like, Kakyo and hating babies <laughs> because of that. And so it's just, like, like, there is literally a Vine that I saw, um, or, like, a TikTok that was, like, hey, why the fuck is your baby staring at me? And someone tagged it with Kakyo, and I was, like, <laughs> good. Baby stand. <laughs> Fucking god, JoJo is incredible. Um, so despite Rohan being literally modeled after him, Araki has stated that the two of them are not the same personality-wise. Totally not mm-hmm. his self-insert. Mm-hmm. He does admit, however, after being asked if he would lick a spider like Rohan does in part four, that he would eat really strange things if he was asked to. And he really draws enjoys drawing skin peeling which is the premise behind rohan's stand heaven's door which turns people into books that he can read and in an interview a rocky again his totally not self-insert self-insert says that if he were to have any stand ability from the series it would be heaven's door which is rohan's stand (laughs) hmm hmm interesting Hmm. hmm yeah the manga's ageless looks have long been a hot topic among his fans, uh, who like to joke that he's immortal and slash or a vampire. Because uh, this man's in his 60s and he Wait, looks like he's in his 60s? Late. Yeah, he looks like he's maybe 40. He looks amazing for 60. Yeah. Holy shit. He is. As of this year, like, or this year, he will be 61. Oh my god. He looks like he is, uh, like, in his 40s. <laughs> I'm sure he loves those vampire rumors. Yeah, Asia Soraki has become a popular ongoing meme in Japan. <laughs> Every time he makes a public appearance, his fans add an up-to-date image of him to a running timeline of his life. <laughs> his first appearance was around 3000 BC, they claim. <laughs> And collectively, collectively marvel at the fact he just never seems to change. He'll be, oh, he'll be 62 in June of 2022. Oh, God. When asked, like, his skin t- care routine, he's like, I just wash my face with Tokyo tap water every day and get good sleep. <laughs> he's just, he's immortal, apparently. He has gone on record. He has gone on record saying he is a self self-proclaimed huge supporter and friend of the lgbtq community i have created mary many androgynous characters to express what i think and 
Scarlet from part seven and Dio also from part seven are both canonically bisexual. Hmm. And saying something with that clarity of language and like not dancing around it and straight up being like, I am a supporter of the LGBTQ community, especially in Japan, is like a very big deal. And he's gone on record and like said that openly. Like we we talked about this in our gay episodes, basically. But like, yeah, it's not common for people to really know what LGBT means. And like, it's not something that you would come out and support openly either. So for him to like, openly say it is pretty cool. And especially because he's an older guy. Yeah. He's in his 60s. And he's like very, he's been very open mm-hmm. about his love and support of the community. And I think that's really, 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 really cool. Mm-hmm. Like genuinely, he is one of my favorite creators. I am so happy that my brain decided to <laughs> hyperfocus on JoJo. It has brought me nothing but serotonin and joy. But like as a creator, and very much in terms of saying something like this publicly and with intent and on record is of like a really big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Quite genuinely. And he's even and he's been more subtle about expressing support or giving direct answers of like characters' sexualities in the past too. Mm-hmm. Like straight up saying that two of his characters from part seven are both bisexual is huge because I I saw an interview he did a while ago. I think it was like an early 2000s interview where the interviewer was asking him like, oh, what kind of girls is Jotaro like actually into? Mm-hmm. Like, and would not drop the question of like, oh, but what's Jotaro like actually into? Like, who's his ideal girlfriend? Like, what's his ideal wife? And Araki just looks so uncomfortable And he's very much, like, dancing around giving a direct answer. And he's very much like, well, he doesn't, like, think of things like like that. Like, he's still trying to figure it out. Like, he's not... He gives a very indirect answer about Jotaro's disinterest in women. Mm -hmm. Which is much different from now where he's straight up saying characters are bisexual. Mm -hmm. Which, this is to say, yes, Jotaro is very much clearly gay slash bisexual coded if you don't think that you're (laughs) wrong and why are you i don't understand how straight people watch jojo honestly i genuinely (laughs) don't the cognitive dissonance to think that any of the joe stars are straight is wild i just i i I don't think i'll ever actually understand how straight people view things because i can't imagine how there's one straight person in jojo's bizarre adventure that is yoshikage kira in part four he wears a purple suit he's the hand fetishist he is the only straight character in jojo the straights can have him he doesn't even have the decency to dress like a whore like a respectable jojo villain everyone else is bisexual or gay i don't that's that's jojo sorry the gays have this one we took it yeah, everyone is queer coded in some capacity. Like there's one single straight person in JoJo. That's it. And they can have yeah, the him. token straight. The token straight. It doesn't even have the decency to dress like a respectable JoJo villain. <laughs> Ridiculous. In JoJo Agogo, which was an art book written and illustrated by Araki, which is a sort of memorial publication to the completed publication of part five, which is Golden Wind. It features illustrations 
from Jojo's Bizarre Adventure and stuff like Araki's comments and thoughts on characters and stands at the time. This came out in 2000, in the year 2000. Jesus, shit that predates <laughs> fucking 9-11. <laughs> Christ. So at the time, when he, when Jojo Agogo came out, he states that his top three stands from a design standpoint at the time were number one is Gold Experience, which is Giorno Giovanna's stand from part five. Number two is Killer Queen, which is Kira Yoshikage, the token straight stand from part four. His, okay, so he's a token straight, mm-hmm. and I hate him. He's a hand fetishist. He's the worst. And, but his stand's aesthetic as a BDSM catboy is good shit, I will say. He can have some rights, but just his stand. He's on thin ice otherwise. Uh, and his third favorite stand from a design standpoint was Echo's Act 1, which is Kyoche, Kyochi Hirose's stand from Part 4. So two stands from Part 4, one stand from Part 5. And the last cool fact I have about Jojo and Araki is foreign characters are commonplace in manga and anime nowadays, more or less. Uh, but they were definitely nowhere near as prevalent back when Araki was creating the first part of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure in the mm-hmm. 80s. And it was super rare, if almost unheard of, to see a character, a main character who wasn't Japanese in the late 80s. Mm. But with the support of his editor, Araki wanted to venture outside of the Japanese bubble and be one of the first to sort of buck that trend and do something different Mm -hmm. and notable, which clearly fucking paid off. (laughs) But that's why the first Jojo, Jonathan Joestar, is a British gentleman in training. And the first part of Jojo's Bizarre Adventure is set in England, mm-hmm. more specifically Liverpool, but it is it isn't in England. Mm-hmm. And Araki has been quoted saying about his decision to make the first JoJo foreign uh, was that it was really adventurous for a shonen manga because it was taboo to have a foreigner as the main character. It was that kind of era. It was a big adventure, so I'm really grateful to my editor to the time. Mm-hmm. And JoJo would continue to be a source of going to foreign lands for most of its run in the main Jojo series of, of one to six, there are actually only two parts that have, that take place anywhere in Japan. (laughs) The rest of Jojo is either in England, the United States, Italy, Egypt, and the rest of Asia. I will say in the U S specifically New York and specifically Florida for some reason, (laughs) Well, I mean, don't know why he chose f- Florida, but I mean, it's Florida. <laughs> it t- yeah, it's all the Florida. weird shit happens in Florida. That's <laughs> fair. I also like that his characters are foreigners, but they're not treated like foreigners in a lot of anime and manga, or they're turned into like spectacles because yeah. the foreign characters are our main characters. They're not like using broken Japanese or have like exaggerated accents. Like obviously they're they're speaking Japanese in like the the original manga and the sub, but yeah, like they're not treated. But they're not Japanese. Yeah, yeah. So the first two JoJo's are British, and the first two Americans are British. Mm-hmm. Jotaro is the first Japanese Joe star, and he's still only half Japanese, which was also like a big a big mm-hmm. deal. <laughs> 
to a lesser extent than having a full-blooded foreigner as a main character, but the fact that he wasn't, like, full Japanese, mm-hmm. was certainly a choice. And even Josuke from part four is also half Japanese, too. And then you have Giorno Giovanna, who is half Japanese and half British and then also Italian. Gets a little... Hey, Giorno, how come Araki lets you have two dads? (laughs) Um, Giorno gets a little funky. But Jolene is, like, half American and then Japanese, Italian, British. She's just a whole melting pot. She's the culmination of the Joestar lineage, which is just... a wild amounts of several different ethnicities. But it's really cool. I just, I love Araki. I love I love Jojo. I'm definitely going to check out some of his other work because I want to see if I can I mean, some of the older stuff might be hard to find, but I want to read like Bao, honestly, because mm-hmm. it sounds fascinating. Especially as like the prototype for the amount of gore that is in Jojo, and I am a connoisseur of horror mm-hmm. so i'd i'd love to see what the sort of prototype for that amount of gore look like looks like yeah i think it has been like officially translated so yeah it might be like one of the easier ones to find yeah definitely much easier than probably his like very first stuff mm-hmm. i think but yeah that's the this episode on on Iraqi. um his style is so cool and constantly evolving, and he's just a really interesting dude, and I can't wait to see, like, literally where he takes JoJo mm-hmm. next. Have you seen his sketch style? No. Because he has a specific style where he does sketches, mm-hmm. and they're just... Here, I sent them in the... They're just... they The vibes Ooh. Are, Ooh. are immaculate. The lines are very messy, but, like, clearly done with such intent. Yeah, I like the way he uses shadows in, like, sketches. Yeah, like, his sketch style is very clearly the stuff that looks the most, like, like direct fashion mm-hmm. stuff. But, um, god, like, here's a couple more. I'm just absolutely <laughs> obsessed with it. Like, my friend has a, like, like, a embroidery machine, and we've been talking about maybe making patches out of a couple of of his like sketch style Mm -hmm. stuff for like a jacket or something because it just it's so good it looks like um if you've seen like like you were saying like if you've seen like fashion design sketches that's what it looks like yeah and it's wild to compare that and i'm sure that we can we can post the the pictures when the episode comes out but it's wild to compare that sketch style to even his more standard cover mm-hmm. art style which it's the same guy completely different vibe it's fascinating anyway i love him um <laughs> that's that's all i gotta oh, say that's all after two hours <laughs> yeah that's all i'm done now <laughs> have you watched anything i mean we've jack and i have watched a little bit of fist of the north star but like that's about it. Um, I've just been trying to catch up on all the stuff I never finished last season, so I'm still watching Ranking of Kings. I do really like the show, and I like where it's going. I just don't know how I feel about like the main character is deaf and doesn't like he can vocalize, but he can't really speak. 
Uh-huh. And I realized, and I feel like I should have realized this earlier, but that means that there has to be, like, a voice actor for stuff. And it feels kind of like what's eating Gilbert Grapeish, where, like, you have... I haven't looked up the voice actor to see if they're deaf or not, but it gives me the same vibes as, like, Leonardo DiCaprio playing, like, a like a disabled kid. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So it's a little iffy in that regard. Like, I, I appreciate them trying to do it where, like, so far, his character hasn't, like, like, he has this disability, but it's not... It's not inspiration porn in the way that, like, he's, like, overcoming his disability. And it's not, like, we should pity this character because he can stand on his own. But I do worry a little bit about how it's kind of framed in this way. And I feel like it can very easily veer into inspiration porn territory, which I don't enjoy. But I guess we'll see how it goes because it's on... Like, the, I guess, part two of season one just started, um, so it's getting into, like, a whole new arc now. But I think it's a really interesting show. I think there aren't nearly enough of them about disabled characters. There aren't nearly enough anime about disabled characters. The last episode I just watched, a character, like, sees a man who's deaf and blind and is like, why would you even keep on living if you're like that? Another... (laughs) Oh, I yeah, and another character is like, mm-hmm. oh, so like, if that was you, then you'd just kill yourself. And he and this character has to have a moment where he's like, shit, you're right. Like, how do why do I get to decide why someone else gets to live? Like, just because they're disabled doesn't mean that like they're not worth anything. So I thought I thought that was interesting. Um, I think it's very important to bring up because I think there are a lot of people who think that like, if you are a disabled person, you are worthless and like it must be a death sentence to be that way and like oh if i had this condition then i wouldn't keep living which is like really horrible like would you say that to an actual disabled person but yeah like there are glimpses there are moments like that where i'm like okay this has potential we'll see how it goes so but yeah that was in i hope everyone (laughs) enjoys and respects how much effort I put into containing myself about talking about going hmm. completely unhinged during this episode. Um, I it could have been way worse, but I attempted to control myself. Yeah, I admire my your restraint to a degree. Thank you, thank you. I appreciate that. I tried so hard. It's still turned into a two-hour episode. <laughs> I'm not honestly. We got to like hour. We're getting towards the hour, and it felt like. You weren't even halfway, and I was like, well, I better buckle in. God, I'm so sorry. (laughs) I feel like this always happens, where I'm like, oh, I don't know if we have enough content to fill an hour, and then it ends up being way longer. Yeah. Two hours. Every time. Every time. I've just stopped worrying (laughs) worrying about it, because I'm like, okay, even if my notes are sparse, I know we'll go into at least 40 minutes of tangents, Mm -hmm. so we'll be okay. (laughs) Uh, but we should probably do credits you can find us on twitter facebook and instagram at twoeavespod or you can email us at leavesinatrenchcoat at gmail.com our opening is my way by vitney and the ending theme is what's the angle by shane ivers 
I'm Madison. And I'm Suzanne. It may be my mental illness, but I sure as hell don't get to choose the brain rot. (laughs) The last thing on this list is fly high with Gucci. Oh, God, hold on. Sorry, the trash is being picked up, and the door is open. Some nice ambiance for the audience. My my rides here, the, <laughs> the, the trash collectors. <laughs> <laughs>